Find John chapter 6 on your device or in your Bible and put in at verse 22. John chapter 6, verses 22 through 40. That's our text this morning. The topic we find there, Jesus invites Israel to believe He is the living bread that comes down out of heaven. The title of our message, The Invite of the Living Bread. Dear Lord, we love coming together for worship. And then, Lord, to follow it up with a study of your word is just almost too good to be true. You are here in this place. You want to minister to your church and to each individual member of your church. We pray, Lord, for those who may be here that don't know you as their Lord and Savior, that they would be convicted and convinced of your love for them and the grace that's available to them on the cross. Do a lot of things here this morning, Lord, more than we could ever imagine. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agree said, amen. You won't find these at Panera. They are the world's four most expensive breads. The shepherd loaf, Great Britain, $21 per loaf. Herod's Roquefort Almond Sourdough Bread, also in Great Britain for $24.50 a loaf. The Royal Bloomer, yes, Great Britain again, $97.34 per loaf. Who knew that the English were so into bread, right? Finally, a non-English bread, gold leaf bread, $120 a loaf. Gold leaf bread is the creation of master baker Moreno, order of the Pan Pina Bakery in Spain. You know, and you've just got one name, you're it. Fabio, you know, that kind of thing. Who remembers Fabio? I'm doing my best to date myself. I've decided that since I'm old and everybody makes fun of my references, I'm going to use more of them. But this guy, uh, Moreno, he owns this 70-year-old family bakery, produces 50 different types of bread. Man, I would have a field day in there. What makes this one so special is that Moreno uses 250 milligrams of edible gold in every loaf. Did you know that there was edible gold that you could cook with? Some of you did, I'm sure. I didn't, and it horrifies me. They say it's okay for you, but they said that a lot of, about a lot of things throughout history, too. There is a priceless bread. I am the bread of life, Jesus explained. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Bread and water are basic material needs, which is why we sometimes use them to represent all of our material needs. We call money bread or dough, and those who earn money we call breadwinners. Jesus appealed to bread to represent our far more pressing spiritual need for salvation. He presented two menus. There is material bread, we'll call it the world's bread, which perishes, and there is the heavenly bread, which endures to everlasting life. It isn't hard to determine which menu to order from. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, the world's bread can never satisfy you. Number two, the Lord is the bread who always satisfies you. Let's take a quick look at the world's bread in verses 22 through 27. C.S. Lewis wrote, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. All human beings have desires which nothing in this world can satisfy. We are more than material boys and girls living in a material world. We were created to be spirit, soul, and body, with our spirit taking the lead. 
Adam and Eve sinned. They died spiritually as God said they would. And now their descendants, like you and I, are born spiritually dead. Our material appetites dominate us. The crowd was driven by their material appetites to follow Jesus. It wasn't only full bellies they were seeking. They were determined to make Jesus king by force. They longed to be free from Roman domination in order to enjoy the material world of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Jesus made a sincere offer to inaugurate the kingdom on earth, but only after the Jews would repent and receive him as their savior. Their prerequisite need was spiritual. Remember going to school, you had to get all those lame prerequisites out of the way before you could study what you really wanted to study? And um, now, in math, they were pretty important. You didn't understand geometry, uh, trigonometry, algebra. You'd never do well in calculus. Of course, most of us would never do well in calculus anyway. But uh, there were always prerequisites. The Jews could not enter the kingdom of God on earth without repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That was the prerequisite. It wasn't enough that they were Jews. They had to have the baptism of repentance from John, later Jesus' disciples, showing that they wanted to enter the kingdom, that they believed who Jesus was. And so we pick up our uh, story in verse 22. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there, except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone, However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. John needs a prerequisite study on run-on sentences, it seems, but we understand what he's saying. The crowd saw the disciples leave on a boat without the Lord, and they watched Jesus solo climb up the mountain. Seems like Jesus and his disciples were under surveillance by the crowd. I'm reminded of those song lyrics, I always feel like somebody's watching me. You ever feel that way? People are watching you if you're a believer. Instead of resenting it, why don't you just receive it and realize that you're being used to reveal Jesus? Sure, people are watching you. You know, when you're a Christian, you have to come to some conclusions, and one of them is that you're going to be watched. It shouldn't surprise you. When somebody at work or at school comes up and says, hey, I, I thought you were a Christian, but I saw you do this or that or... Or on the other hand, maybe you minister to somebody because you're a Christian. They, everybody, ever have anybody come up to you and, and commend you for something? You're like, was that me? I don't even remember being there. And so you are being watched, and it's okay. Put it negatively. What are you doing that you don't want people to see? Don't do it. Do, what the, do the things that people need to see. These are the end times, and we need to be revealing Jesus. The twelve departed, and Jesus seemed settled for the night. The crowd quit paying attention just as it was about to get good. Last week and in the previous verses, we see the walking on water. You don't want to miss something the Lord wants you to see or hear. Stay attentive throughout your day and let the Lord prompt you. Verse 24, when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. Estimates of the crowd size are upwards of 10,000. Few could fit on the small boats that had come to shore that morning. The rest continued on their annual pilgrimage to the temple for the Passover. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, when did you come here? Jesus chose not to reveal how he had come to be in Capernaum. 
He kept the miracle of walking on water between the disciples and himself. If you witnessed a miracle, would you keep it quiet? I think a miracle begs for uh, an audience, doesn't it? And the whole reason a miracle happens is so God can be honored. And yet Jesus kept this one secret. It just goes to show that the Lord always has not only what he did, but a way of doing it. And, and a lot, let's get away from miracles for a minute. It's a spiritual gift. And just talk about some other spiritual gifts. Maybe you're gifted in a certain way. Maybe you have what's called the word of knowledge, where all of a sudden you know something about, you know, Pastor Gene that you couldn't know any other way. You know that he surpassed 100 coffee machines, and it's probably sin that needs to be repented of. Should you just run up and talk to Pastor Gene about that? Maybe, or maybe the Lord will give you a, a different timing for it. Uh, just because, you, you know, you think you should do something doesn't mean that the Lord thinks you should. And so be open to the Lord's leading to those kinds of things. He likes to mix it up. He doesn't want to do the same thing the same way all the time. Otherwise, you start to get the glory for it. Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Of course, we must work to meet material needs. Jesus was establishing priority. Spiritual beings require spiritual food first and foremost. Is breakfast really the most important meal of the day? A lot of people say it is, and therefore they won't leave home without it. They make time for it. If they're late for breakfast, they try and grab something uh, so that they you know, don't blow it all day. How much more important to feed on God's word? Uh, right? Not necessarily, you know, true, but uh, one old slogan puts it like this, no Bible, no breakfast. Did you ever hear that before? When I was a young Christian, that's what we, I came across that somewhere, and I thought, wow, that's great. Not because it was a legalism, not because it, it made me feel like I had accomplished anything, but it reminded me that I feed my physical body. I think it's super important. I think I'm going to fall apart if I don't eat right away and then I want to eat more and more and I keep eating and keep eating because, man, after all, I need a lot of nourishment, right? But a lot of times, oh, I don't, have, I don't have time for God because I have to eat breakfast. Well, where's your priority in that? And so it reminds you of your priority. God's a, a much better nourishment to get you through the day than your breakfast. I'm not advocating not eating breakfast. Why don't you just have coffee for breakfast? It all ties in, and then I'm not in such sin. Come to my house, and I'll make you coffee in one of my hundred coffee makers. But anyway, they're all cheap. Spiritual hunger and thirst uh, are not as obvious as physical hunger and thirst. You know, when you're physically hungry and thirsty, it makes itself known. Your stomach starts to growl. Never had your stomach growl in a group of people? You try and act like, you know, it wasn't you. You do your foot on the ground or something, you know. No, I don't know what that was. <laughs> feed me, feed me. It's embarrassing. And so, you know, and I find myself getting dehydrated more and more, right? And you think, man, I feel terrible. When's the last time I had anything to drink? Oh, Tuesday. But, you know, you're supposed to drink 500 milliliters of water a day. Is that what they're up to now? Five, something like that. People carry around... They get bigger and bigger, the jugs, right? 
Now people are carrying around sparklets, you know, five gallons. Hey, can you help me get my afternoon drink? But, uh, you know, it's crazy. But physically, you, you, you uh, have these tells that you need to eat or drink. Spiritually, not so much. I mean, if I come to church or to work, you don't know if I've spent any time in the Bible or not. I mean, it's not like you said, you know, Gina, we can tell because your left eye droops whenever you miss your devotions. Of course, that was my right eye, so I don't know what that means. <laughs> my right, your left. How's that? And so that's why we talk about pursuing spiritual discipline on a regular discipline basis. And what are they? Very simply, we pray, we read God's word, we go to church and fellowship with other believers, we share our faith. Uh, and those things allow us to be nourished as we're in contact with other Christians and with the Lord uh, on a constant basis. And that's why we need to do them as, or, as often as we possibly can. Again, not in a legalistic way. We're not checking off how many times we went to church. We want to go to church. I'd like to be at church every day. I'd like to have a service like this every day. Uh, we don't. Uh, but, you know, that's, there's reasons for that. But, uh, and, and so we need to do those things because we, we can easily draw away from the Lord and not be nourished and not know that we're undernourished. Then you want to be sure that the spiritual bread you're taking in is genuine. There's a lot of poison out there masquerading as spiritual food. God puts his seal on Jesus. John the Baptist attested to the genuineness of Jesus, introducing him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God the Father attested to Jesus, speaking from heaven that Jesus was his beloved Son, in whom he was well pleased. The miracles Jesus performed attested to his genuineness. No other religious figure bears God's seal of genuineness and approval. You can't look at Joseph Smith or Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius or any of those guys and say, oh yeah, there's a stamp of God's divine approval on him. Listen to this person and you'll be nourished. Quite the opposite. Skull and crossbones on all of that. There's only one source of satisfaction. Captain Barbosa explained the curse that was upon the Caribbean pirates of the Black Pearl by saying, The drink would not satisfy, food turned to ash in our mouths, nor the company in the world would harm or slake our lust. We are cursed men, compelled by greed we were, but now we are consumed by it. An eternal being can never be satisfied by material bread. Rather than consuming it, the material world consumes us. Think of uh, addictions and, and substance abuse. At first, it's all fun, right? You get drunk, you get high, it feels good. You, maybe you did it to leave your troubles behind. You're depressed and you want to get out of it for a while. Whatever. And there's a certain fleshly excitement about it that, that draws you back in more and more. But eventually, a lot of you know this, this would be your testimony, you become consumed by that which you were consuming. It overwhelms your life. It dominates your life. It ruins your life. It destroys marriages. It destroys real lives as people go out there and drive under the influence and kill innocent people and stuff like that. And so that's, that's the deal. You, material things cannot ever satisfy. All they do is show you that you need something or someone else to satisfy you. And that, of course, is the Lord. And so in verses 28 through 40, the Lord is the bread who always satisfies there's a bizarre tradition of weighing each member of the English royal family before and after Christmas dinner. I know, you don't know what to believe. 
It's true. I googled it. <laughs> but it is true. The more weight gain, the merrier. Obviously, right? Because they, they were having a good time and they just stuffed themselves. Boy, the British and their bread and their snow. <laughs> Who knew? I would have guessed it would be Italians, but anyway. The bread of life isn't a matter of taking in the word of God until we must push away from the table. We don't build up spiritual fat. Your spirit won't weigh more when you leave this morning. We don't have a scale, you know, where you weigh yourself on the way and then on the way I'll say, oh, that's a terrible sermon. I only gained three grams. You know, we don't do that. Jesus doesn't give us the bread of life. He is the bread of life. We don't consume him as a commodity. We are to be consumed with him and thereby be totally satisfied in life knowing him. So again, let's take your morning devotion. So just throw that out there. Maybe you have them, maybe you don't. Maybe they come at night. Nobody's saying that you're not a Christian if you don't have morning devotions, but it's a good illustration. So you have your devotions. Nothing wrong with wanting to get through the Bible in a year or reading the chronological Bible or reading the Old Testament once and the New Testament twice. Nothing wrong with any of those goals, right? That's all good. But it's not like you do that to become filled up with spiritual things. It's not like you get to the end of Ecclesiastes and push away and say, man, whew, man, that was some meal. Left me a little bit sour, but I got it in. It's not just a commodity. You're there to see Jesus on every page. Jesus said that he came in the volume of the book. It's all about him. He taught the two on the road to Emmaus a Bible study where he showed them all the places in the Bible, in the Law and the Prophets that spoke about him. And so what you're always doing in your devotions is you and Jesus are growing in your personal relationship. He is the bread. What you're reading isn't the bread. He is the bread, and he takes what you're reading and he nourishes you. You are to be consumed with him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? We earn our bread working hard for the dough as breadwinners. Does it not follow we would work or do works for spiritual bread? No, it does not follow. What must I do to be saved is essentially the question they're asking. Every religion and philosophy is an attempt to give a satisfactory answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? They all, without exception, require some work or works in order for you to earn and therefore deserve salvation. You cannot ever hope to earn or deserve salvation because you are already born dead in trespasses and sins. You're conceived in the womb and born dead in trespasses and sins. Nothing can be done by you. Something must be done for you. And it has been done. Jesus came as God in human flesh. He took your place on the cross so that God the Father could declare you righteous when you believe in Jesus. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. One commentator writes, The only work that you can do is not to work, but rather to believe in Jesus, the one whom the Father has sent to provide salvation through his death and resurrection. Verse 30, therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. 
Now, their argument is not without biblical merit. I mean, if, if, you know, we read this and we say, wait a minute, Jesus just fed 5,000. Uh, he had done other miracles up to this. I mean, what are they talking about? Well, it's an interesting argument because to them, Jesus seemed lesser than Moses. Jesus fed a multitude. Moses fed millions. Jesus did it once. Moses did it for 40 years. Jesus provided ordinary barley bread. Moses gave them bread out of heaven, the manna. So verse 32, then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Moses did not give them the manna. God did. Now, we might commonly say, you know, it was Moses that gave them the manna, but, but Jesus says, no, you're confusing things. Moses never gave anybody manna. He just talked about it and told us the rules about it. It came from heaven. If I were to ask you, for example, which country in the world has sent out the most missionaries, you would probably say Great Britain or the United States. And you would be true on one hand, but it's a trick question on the other because countries don't send missionaries. Churches send missionaries. Now, we're blessed to be in free, uh, a free country where we can do that, and it's no, it takes nothing away from the greatness of our nation or anything like that, but it, it shows you how we should be thinking. We should always be thinking about the Lord. The Lord is great and greatly to be praised. If there's a spiritual work to be done, the Lord is the one who does it. He uses people, but we don't do it. He does it through us. And so Jesus says, first of all, Moses didn't give it to you. God must occupy first place in all of our thinking. Verse 34, then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Still missing the point. The bread was already given. Jesus is the bread Verse 35, and Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Comes and believes are interchangeable. Come to Christ, believe in him. And as Adam Clark writes, you shall be perfectly satisfied and never feel misery of mind. All the guilt of your sins shall be blotted out. Your soul shall be purified unto God. And being enabled to love him with all your heart, you shall rest fully, supremely, and finally happy in God. Jesus promised you will never hunger or thirst. You ever, ever said to somebody, never say never? Never is a strong word. It's, it's like a final word, never. Don't ever, if you're ever in an argument with your spouse, please don't say, I never loved you. It's pretty much the beginning of the end, right? Never is a harsh word. Now, Jesus promised you would never hunger or thirst. This doesn't mean you will not want to know more and more about him. It means that you can always be satisfied with him. He is and always will be your source of satisfaction. You need never hunger because knowing Jesus satisfies your spirit in any circumstances. But I said to you, verse 36, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. They did not believe largely because of their attention on the material world. Roman domination and cruelty distracted them from spiritual pursuits. It affected their leaders in particular. The Jewish Supreme Court, called the Sanhedrin, had become worldly rather than remaining consecrated to God. They were astute politicians mired in politics, not prayer. 
Eventually, they were murderers as they sought a way to destroy Jesus and murder him. And so their, their struggle with Rome and, and, and you know, the, uh, started to affect their theology. And they began to justify uh, the end by, and the, you know, the means to the end. And it was, it's terrible. Jesus is with us in our difficulties to prove that he, that is his grace, is sufficient for us. Whether we are delivered from our troubles or through them, in the long run, it doesn't matter. We are delivered with him in them. Favorite example of all time, I've used it all the time, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fiery furnace. They told Nebuchadnezzar, God's going to deliver us, but if he doesn't, we don't care. He's going to either deliver us through it or from it. And uh, then he ended up being in there with them. And they were experiencing real satisfaction. I'm sure they wanted to stay. Wouldn't you rather be with Jesus in the fiery furnace than without Jesus? Absolutely. And so that's what this is. This is the satisfaction that we're talking about. Not a worldly satisfaction which can never satisfy. Verse 37. All the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Now, we will go astray in our comments unless we identify these people first and then get a little bit of background uh, to what this is saying. So who are all that the Father gives me who come to Jesus? Well, drop down to verse 45 where they are identified. It is written in the prophets, they shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. The all that the Father gives Jesus are everyone who has heard and learned from the Father. They are people, and in this case they are Jews, who heard the Father. Well, what do you hear when the Father talks? Well, you hear the gospel. That's, that's what God is all about. And so the uh, you know, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And so the implication here is that these were Jews who had submitted to the baptism of John and were looking forward to the kingdom being established. And they were saved. We know they were saved. Otherwise, they could not be described as going on to learn from God. If you hear from God and reject him, God doesn't say, well, now I'm going to teach you my ways. You, you need to get saved. So these are saved Jews, basically, is, is all that Jesus is saying. Now, a couple of more background scriptures that I'll try and tie together, just hang loose. In chapter 3, Jesus said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus was alluding to the time when a plague of deadly poisonous serpents were in the camp of Israel. The solution God provided was a brass serpent on a pole that was lifted up so everyone could see it. So if you got bit by one of these poisonous snakes, you had a brief period of time to look and see the pole with the snake on it, and you would be cured. You would be saved, we would say. Anyone who looked at it was saved. Looking was believing God that you would be saved. I mean, you could stand there and say, I don't see how looking at a pole could possibly save me. I, I need somebody to suck out the venom, or I need an anti-venom, or I need to quickly cut off my leg before it starts to spread. That's a great scene in World War Z. But anyway, um, I digress. But no, all you had to do is, there's that pole. I see it. And, and that was it. You were cured. In chapter 12 of John, Jesus will say, If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. 
And so we're told there that God provided Jesus on the cross, lifted up, so everyone could see it. And, and so the, the brass serpent on the pole was a type of the cross to come. Something supernatural happens at the cross when Jesus is lifted up, such that all mankind is described as being drawn to him. People will say, well, no one can come to the Father unless they're drawn. Yeah, and they are drawn by the cross. And that means all men are drawn. To say that no one can come to Jesus without having been drawn by the Father is not to say that every person drawn comes to Christ. It's an acknowledgement that all those who do come to Christ will have been drawn. So the cross draws everyone by its, by its in, inference, but only those who are saved are drawn all the way in. And now look at verse 40 in our chapter. Everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life. So here is what we know thus far from that brief survey of Scripture. Jesus being lifted up on the cross in your place is how you are saved by a holy God. It solves the problem of sin, overcoming Satan and death, promising a person eternal life. The cross exerts a supernatural influence on every man so they can be saved. Men are saved when they believe in Jesus. Elsewhere in the Bible, we are told Jesus is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. So now verse 37, all that the Father gives me is describing Jews who repented and believed in preparation for the kingdom Jesus was offering. The crowd that followed Jesus to Capernaum was all about materialism, but there were those in Israel who were following the Lord. They were those who had been baptized by John the Baptist, later by Jesus' disciples. All of these would come to Jesus and be received by him forever. The crowd that followed the Lord to Capernaum was all about materialism. As I said, they would not believe in him, but many would, and it says Jesus would never, ever cast them out. For I have come down from heaven, verse 38, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sends me. Jesus was on a mission from God. This crowd might mostly reject him, but God's plan for Israel could not fail. In the context of eternal life, what is the will of God? God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I mean, we know that for sure. What is, what is the will of God? People, obviously, you want it for your own life. You're always wondering, what's the will of God for my life? When can I move out of Hanford is what you're really wondering. But I love it here. After all, it's not Riverdale. I mean, you know, I was so close. Another couple of miles and that would have been it, you know, and stuff. But uh, uh, <laughs> why Riverdale? I don't know. But, you know, the will of God. So there is that aspect of the will of God. But overall, we know, we know the will of God is that none would perish, but that all would come to eternal life. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up the last day. That's essentially what Peter says in his second epistle in a different way. Believers are safe for eternity. Jesus cannot lose you on the way to heaven. Right? Hey, has anybody seen Gene? Last time I saw him, he was on Jupiter. Wanted to see what that big red spot was all about. Man, I hope he knows the rest of the way. We've got to turn left at the Milky Way or, you know, whatever. I mean, you can't... He's not going to lose anybody on the way to heaven. Verse 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. See the Son and believe. Again, remember the serpent on the pole? 
When an Israelite saw it, he was spared. It was equivalent to believing. It is that illustration, that type, Jesus was alluding to. It certainly wasn't a work. Is it a work? Do you do works for God when you look up at a serpent and are saved? That's kind of an anti-work. I mean, it's, not, it's the last thing you would think that somebody would do in order to be saved. And that's why Jesus said that's what the cross is like. There's no work on your part, no works that you can do. You just uh, are drawn to the cross. God's grace makes it possible for your will to be freed so that you can make a decision to receive Christ. See the Son and believe. William MacDonald writes, To see the Son here means not to see him with the physical eyes, but rather with the eyes of faith. One must see or recognize that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Then, too, he must believe on him. This means that by a definite act of faith, he must receive the Lord Jesus as his own Savior. All who do this receive everlasting life as a present possession and also receive the assurance that they will be raised at the last day. On a practical basis, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, you can be saved. You just need to see that Jesus was crucified for you because you were born dead in trespasses and sins. And all you've done the rest of your life is sin. What do you mean, Gene? I've never killed anybody. How about that road rage the other day? Or some other angry episode? Because Jesus said if you're angry at somebody, it's equivalent to murder when it comes to getting into heaven. Because it shows that there is an essential problem in the heart that has to be dealt with and it must be at the cross. And so you can be saved today. You can become a new creature in Jesus Christ. Now, when is this last day? John's talking about the resurrection. And so the last day he's talking about here is in relation to when a person is resurrected from the dead. And that's different for different groups of believers. In a previous study, we described in depth the series of resurrections the Bible describes for both believers and non-believers. Uh, Jesus first to raise from the dead. A few guys were raised from the dead when he was raised from the dead. Then there's going to be the rapture and resurrection of the church, on and on and on, till all believers are raised from the dead. Then non-believers will be raised by the dead. So, so John is saying there, there's going to come a last day for every person, and they will be raised from the dead. And when you get to that last day as a Christian, the Lord's going to take you home. Whether we've died or are alive and remain, we, we will receive our forever glorified bodies. I want to address a false criticism of the rapture. Uh, I just, it's sort of suggested by the text, but I just really wanted to talk about it and I uh, feel like the Lord put it on my heart for, for us. Uh, there's a criticism, and by the way, it comes from Christians who are not futurists when it comes to prophecy. They refer to the rapture as the secret rapture. Have you ever come across that term, reading or studying? Well, you will, uh, or you might. People say, oh, you, you believe in it. They ridicule it as the secret rapture. And what they mean is that, or what they want to do is they want to lump us in with all these crazy people throughout history who predicted a date for the coming of Jesus. And then when it didn't come, they made up a reason why he didn't come. And it's squirrely at best, right? And so it's like, oh, some secret rapture. He really came in 1844, but nobody knew about it. And that's what you guys believe. No, that's not what we believe. 
You've never heard us talk about a secret rapture. The rapture is going to be anything but secret. I mean, think it through right now. We're in church right now. If we heard that trumpet, hopefully we would all be gone. I'd hate to see anybody left behind. I don't know if your clothes are going to fall off of you or, or be folded up or what. I don't know, but we'll just be gone. And think of that happening all over the world at the same time. Millions and millions, maybe a billion, maybe two billion people. Who knows how many are born again? All of a sudden, they're just gone. Besides the terror that would ensue just in personal hearts, some of those guys are going to be flying airplanes, and some are going to be driving buses, and there'll be a lot of them on the L.A. freeway. And, uh, you know, they'll be doing things that are both mundane and necessary. And there will be uh, accessory tragedies, you might say, as planes crash and cars crash and buildings catch on fire. And I mean, it, it's going to be pretty terrifying. There's nothing secret about it. I'm not sure if non-believers will be able to see the Lord, uh, but there will be nothing secret about it. And, it, you know, so, you know, if you're going to criticize somebody, do it right. You know, find out what they really believe, not what you think they believe or something easy to knock down and, and get into it. Uh, we're not afraid to talk to people about the Bible. The Bible is true and what they're telling us isn't. Other Christians can have different beliefs. We can talk with them. We don't need to ridicule each other, especially us since we know we're right. We can be calm and... The resurrection and rapture won't be in secret. It'll be terribly obvious. Global chaos. Restaurants have different menus or menu choices. You go in, you say, I need a kid's menu or a breakfast menu, or I need a, a gluten-free menu. I need a vegetarian menu. I need a vegan menu. Uh, did you realize that if you're a vegan, you can't even use pots and pans in which any animal products have been cooked. So if you're a restaurant that caters to vegans and other normal people, uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'm actually a vegetarian myself, but uh, then you have to have a whole set of cutlery and, and pots and pans. It doesn't matter that you wash them. They were used, and so it's a big deal. So you've got all these other menus floating around, but um, it's important because, I mean, you could, you know, people have allergies. You know, have you ever ordered, does this have nuts in it? Oh, no. And you take a bite, you become like a puffer fish, you know. It's like, and the waitress comes back, oh, oh, you mean nuts. <laughs> so you want to have the right menu. If you were to have to write a menu describing your overall worldview and your current spiritual diet, what would that menu be? What would be on your menu? It's, it's an interesting exercise. Would it be food that perishes, or would it be the bread of life? Would that elderly lady on the Wendy's commercial say, where's the bread? Remember her? I'm dating myself, I told you, but who remembers the old lady in the Wendy's commercial, where's the beef? Got it. All us normal people that have a historic love for iconic images. Or would they say something like, Pastor Gene runs on Jesus. Dunkin' Donuts, get it? America runs on Dunkin'. I don't mind explaining all this. It just takes a lot longer. But I refuse to give it up. I, I'm not giving ground on any of this. The truth is, though, think about that. I mean, Jesus said there's a menu that perishes. 
And we're all in this world, physical material world. We have to work. We have to earn. There's nothing wrong with saving. You know, there, all of this is, is within the realm of possibility. But when does that become the priority? When does that rob from our being nourished by the bread of life? That, that's the question that will constantly be a question in our lives. And it doesn't help us to make lists, uh, you know, or do 10 things or 12 things or 40 things. Because that, that's a worldly way of looking at it. We need to remind ourselves what Jesus says, I, I, I am the bread of life. Are you spending time with me? Are you appealing to me? Do you hear me? Do you see me in the scriptures? Are you acting like me? Do people see me in you? And, and of course, the answer to all of those is, of course, Lord, we want them to, and we want to be like you. We want to be changed from moment to moment, from glory to glory, to be more like the Lord and be seen as he is.